This is about the betterment of our world, the understanding that we have about really creating open knowledge in a, in a pure way and the incentives and the ways in which things are set up to be so individualistic and closed off, I think, operate against that. Hi, I'm Stephanie Tumampos, and you're listening to Down to Earth, the show where we talk to incredible geoscientists about their science and its impacts on our planet. This season, we're speaking to a wide variety of folks to investigate all things open science. As we've heard throughout the season, the open science movement is rapidly gaining momentum. More and more scientists are making their data open. Proprietary softwares are using open source code. Free MOOCs have gained widespread appeal, demonstrating the value of investing in open education resources. But who is paying for all this open science? Today, we take a look at current and possible funding structures for sustaining open science into the future. This episode of Down to Earth is brought to you by the IEEE Geoscience and Remote Sensing Society. The GRSS is a community of passionate researchers and practitioners who are working to benefit society through their science, engineering, education, and applications. This year, GRSS is excited to collaborate with the NASA Transform to Open Science Initiative to celebrate the year of open science with a whole down-to-earth season devoted to this very topic. To learn more and get involved in the year-long events and celebrations, visit science.nasa.gov and search for open science. I got into this space um, through an organization called Creative Commons because of friends and loved ones that were battling rare neglected diseases that couldn't get access to the information they needed to get the help that they needed or to better understand the disease so they knew which doctors to approach. The initial work we were doing at Creative Commons was actually with the rare neglected disease research population because they were more experimental. They were more willing to collaborate because they were flying under the radar of major federal funding and needing to help the individuals and the patients that they had. This is Caitlin Thaney. She's the executive director of a relatively new organization called Invest in Open Infrastructure. To me, the additional funding for open science, it not only helps force that recognition about how research should operate, provides the resourcing to ensure that that is possible and not just seen as sort of a nice to have. And it starts to shift that dynamic to move away from extractive services to things that are more aligned with the needs of society in terms of ensuring that that information is then shared and accessible by the broader public. Invest in Open Infrastructure, or IOI for short, is a nonprofit initiative dedicated to improving funding and resourcing for open technologies and systems supporting research and scholarship. They collaborate with funders, institutional leaders, and open infrastructure communities to shed light on challenges, conduct research into solutions, and put solutions into practice to enact change. In this episode, I'm interested in how the economics of open science could work, especially for someone like me who has little knowledge about how funding works. From the way I see it, you can't sell science that is already publicly available. So how can we sustain open science when there doesn't seem to be a financial return on investment? Let's find out. So to start, how is open science currently funded? What mechanisms are in place for this type of work? So when we think of the, the funding mechanism, many cases, there are either institutional resources that are allocated. In some cases, the projects 
face an initial funding from philanthropic sources or even government funding. Um, in many of those cases, that core funding usually is around two to five years of funding. Um, the membership models are also very, very common in the space where you see institutions or organizations uh, pledging or supporting a project that has a really distributed user base um, with, say, anywhere between five and $25,000, very distributed governance, etc. cetera. Um, there are also worth noting that when we think of, for example, um, different open data or computational forms of uh, open science uh, efforts, that there's a different relationship also with industry support. So for example, the Jupyter and IPython community um, not only has been supported by an array of philanthropic funders, government funders, institutions, as well as industry, um, but also has a relationship where there is in-kind support um, and in terms of staff time from for-profit companies um, from Rackspace, Netflix, uh, Amazon, Google, etc., cetera, uh, that work full-time on helping to advance the core technologies and support um, as a means of also supporting that effort. And just for a bit more context, how does open science funding compare with traditional science funding? Ooh, I think in terms of the comparison of open science initiatives versus more traditional science funding in terms of dollars allocated uh, is traditionally much lower than what we see allocated to research and development globally. It's hard to get the hard and fast numbers because our organization has been for the past year and a half, for example, looking at ways to quantify how much research funding or how much philanthropic funding is going to open initiatives or even open infrastructure. Um, working across that funding data, you hit specific issues in terms of what data is available, how that information is categorized. It's not easy to be able to look across and say, okay, it's $3.6 billion, right? Um, but I think we know in terms of practice and in terms of some of the shifts that the majority of the research funding that is our t that is currently going out to support many endeavors um, is not traditionally earmarked for open research initiatives. Um, we know also on speaking in the U.S. and the federal funding scale that when it comes to compliance with even some of the open uh, mandates and recommendations, we know that it has been quite variable as to how many of those federally funded projects with public dollars follow that route. So I would say that it is much smaller in comparison with the necessary caveat that it's very difficult to pull that number. And I would love to be able to get to a place where we had a better idea as to what that looked like. So what is IOI doing in this area? What are you looking into? So, so for IOI's work in particular, we came about, um, we originally started as a coalition of different um, leaders in the open access and open infrastructure space, tool providers, academics, others that are running research organizations, individuals that have been leading advocacy efforts. And the work that we were looking to do was really to not only think about how we can structurally start to increase the investment in open infrastructure projects, increase the health of the ecosystem, but then also to think about where we can start to be um, 
you know, more effective about how funding is, is flowing. And to that, it surfaced a number of really deep questions that I don't believe we have answers to um, in terms of where is funding currently flowing? Where can we start to understand where there might be different concentrations of power and concentrations of resourcing that is, you know, under-resourcing other areas and how can we help with that? Um, in addition to that, also the bigger question about, as I mentioned, some of these projects have been heavily funded through membership-based programs from and funded by universities, which you can start to quantify. Some are more transparent than others, so you can start to get a sense of what sort of foundational support they are receiving from institutions. But also institutions often provide a significant amount of in-kind support through staff time, through development time, and what have you, that is not not cleanly broken apart in their budget to be able to say this is the investment around open infrastructure. And so there's um, complexity in terms of understanding that. So what we set out to do for IOI is to not only really dig deep in terms of challenging some of those assumptions, but actually building a research and an evidence base that would help de-bias some of those funding decisions and taking that at a really structural level to not only help better answer some of those questions before we think about allocations of funding and capital, but also engaging with those who are most impacted by those decisions, including library leaders, researchers, infrastructure providers, funders, and more. And so not only thinking about the research about that, building out the funding mechanisms and the ability to bring funding together in a collective way to administer in new ways to help advance the ecosystem, but then also working to help engage others to further a shared road for and a shared roadmap for the um, additional investment. So right now you're creating a web to connect folks in the open science landscape, including funders from a variety of areas, as well as scientists engaged in the open science work. What are we seeing now in terms of changes to the funding landscape for open science today? We're seeing, at least from our vantage point, an increased uh, awareness that some of the short-term funding, that that not only leads to a significant amount of burnout, but it actually makes the broader ecosystem less stable and less resilient, and also leads to a proliferation of projects that can't be supported, uh, you know, or sustained longer term without other means of helping to support what it looks like for there to be, say, interoperability, interdependence of these services, things that can ensure that they're viable alternatives. And so I would say that we're, we're seeing not only recognition that there needs to be a better way to do that, um, we're also seeing an increased recognition and understanding of some of the maintenance concerns. And so I'm seeing funders be more experimental in terms of the types of projects that they're that they're supporting to get a better understanding of where they can move into that space with intention. Also thinking of different collective funding mechanisms or different grassroots projects to support. And then thinking also we're seeing increased notices around um, and different funding programs that are signaling that they're looking at critical or at-risk or essential programs um, to help further open science and really thinking about the things that are 
underfunded traditionally and where they can shine a light on those and provide not only the resourcing in terms of funding, but also the community, the, you know, opportunities for that to grow, the resilience there as well by um, adding additional sort of social services and trainings there as well. As we move through this transition from unfunded open science to funded, how do we address issues of competition and inequality that inevitably arise since we live in, in an individualistic and capitalist society? That is a very, very meaty question. Um, and I don't, I unfortunately don't have any like quick or easy answers by any stretch of the imagination. I do think that there's both a, a clear signaling that needs to be done um, from the funders and also those that are overseeing various um, funding calls to say these are the expectations in terms of how much budget gets allocated to making sure this is available and making sure that people are paid, making sure that there are proper systems in place. Um, but in terms of the um, how to make sure that this is sort of equitable and moving beyond the individualistic side, it's so difficult because it feels like many of these systems have been so entrenched in the way in which we do things. And so I think more experimentation is needed, to be honest. Um, one example that I heard of recently outside of the research space was that there was a group in Nairobi, Kenya, that um, the funding you know, for a certain area was, was allocated. There was a group of finalists that were identified as grantees. And then the program had those grantees meet with one another and as a group collectively decide how those funds were going to be dispersed and, and how they were going to be broken apart. And thinking of like what that process would look like with even some of the individuals that are, you know, aligned with open science, providing services. But like if you were to get to say five of those core services that might serve similar needs into a room and say, okay, there's $2 million that needs to be broken apart, you know, among five of you. So you decide how that is done and come back. It To me, there's a really interesting, there, there are interesting things there that I would hope would emerge in terms of maybe discussions about shared services, discussions about how to collaborate in various ways, or maybe have shared staffing or pooled resources in various ways, or understanding need across and who can best serve certain areas and who can help best serve others. And what we say no to, things that are really difficult to do when you feel like your, your resourcing is at stake when you may have to meet make payroll, right? Like some of those things are getting into the capitalistic side that I think can get so complicated. I think we really need to change or actually shift our understanding when it comes to funding. You know, we almost, I think we need to create a new vision for funding. So it's less about scarcity and more about abundance, less mm -hmm. about funding. Yes individual projects and programs and more about sustainable, consistent funding, maybe something akin to the funding structure proposed for universal basic income. I like where you're going with that. The models that are currently at play are not serving us particularly well. Like they're, they're helping to move things forward, but we do need more and we need different, we need experimentation, right? And that's why we are conducting research with others that might be coming from say social impact investing or the solidarity economy or different means of helping to 
put those most impacted by a certain investment in a decision-making role and radically looking at that sort of um, change and service to community. And I think your example about universal basic income is really interesting. Um, One of the areas that we've been investigating was also in terms of how utilities are funded and paid for. So thinking of, for example, analogies between open knowledge and, you know, scholarship and also water and how that's funded, right? That there's not only multiple different levels in terms of types of partnerships, types of funding roles and responsibilities, but at the end of the day, it's a broader understanding that water is necessary and you're not looking at that being disrupted in the way in which we see currently. So what what does that look like if we're looking at providing um, at least base level infrastructure for ensuring that people can access and participate in knowledge production, that they can have, you know, that sort of steady stream, so to speak. As Caitlin indicates, we need to think outside the box when it comes to funding open science. It's about making traditional funding structures more transparent, of course. But it's also about thinking through what assets we already have, how we can maximize those assets, and where we can find unique models of funding to build a solid open infrastructure for open science. Interestingly, IOI is actually a prime example of some, dare I say, radical ways of role modeling open infrastructure. We'll learn more about how they're leading by example right after the break. Are you a student or recent grad ready to reach your full potential in the geosciences? Then you need to join the Geoscience and Remote Sensing Society. With over 75 chapters in 94 different countries, you'll connect with a diverse community of professionals, experts, and advisors who can inspire your science and help shape your career. Find support and fellowship as part of our Young Professionals Network. Advance your skills through our GRSS schools, student travel grants, workshops, and more. Be at the forefront of geoscience research by joining our technical committees and network with geoscientists from around the world at IGARS, our flagship conference. Our incredible international community is ready to welcome you. Learn more and get connected today by visiting grss-i-e.org. Welcome back. Today we're speaking to Caitlin Thaney, Executive Director of Invest in Open Infrastructure, or IOI for short. Caitlin has provided some very interesting examples of ways we can fund open science. The grant allocation process in Kenya was an interesting one. Imagine how differently we would allot funding if grant winners had to collectively decide exactly how much each person would get. IOI is researching these types of examples and more to figure out how we can better support open science. One area they are also looking into is open infrastructure. Now, Caitlin was quick to point out that there are lots of different interpretations for what open infrastructure is, but here is how IOI currently defines it. Open infrastructure is the narrow sets of services, protocols, standards, and software that can empower communities to collectively build the systems and infrastructures that deliver new improved collective benefits without restrictions and for a healthy global interrelated infrastructure system. In my own words, it's all the support scientists need, including funding and governance, to do open science in a sustainable way. 
IOI is actually an example of an organization that embraces a very open infrastructure. I asked Caitlin how IOI lives their values in terms of open infrastructure and funding, and this is what she had to say. Well, in terms of funding, everything, every dollar that comes into IOI is publicly available and it's publicly disclosed because we care really deeply about governance. Uh, we went through a longer process to evolve and actually build intentional governance. We have built out multiple structures, including financial oversight committees, governance and nominating committees, additional steering committees, um, and other checks and balances that we think are really necessary and should be prioritized. And so we really live our values not only in terms of that governance ourselves and continuing to challenge our own thinking regarding that, but also really taking it even a step further, having our conflict of interest disclosures for anyone who works with IOI, including our governance members, community members, etc. Um, those are all publicly made available because we do recognize the, the issues when it comes to power in the broader space. And if we're going to be making funding recommendations, understanding that we don't want to be putting a thumb unduly on the scale um, and that there are a number of efforts, even in the broader open science space where you see similar individuals that are in leadership positions across. Um, and while, you know, those, those are individuals that in many cases we've worked really closely with for a long time, um, also recognizing the risk that comes along with that. Hmm. Beyond that, we, we run quarterly collaborator calls with funders and also peer initiatives, people that would otherwise be seen maybe as competitors in a more traditional sense, to share out what we are doing, um, to solicit their opinions, to help further, again, the shared roadmap to say, we can't do it all. We want to help support you. Where can we amplify the work that you're doing? Where can we support this? Where can we be really open about that um, and doing that together, which is, I think, a very a much more radical sort of take on that. And then, you know, in terms of the transparency and iteration uh, and commitment to open, you know, we try to use open source technologies and also pay and support those open source communities where we can. And then lastly, in terms of transparency, we, uh, we have on a, our documentation hub, which is on HackMD, as much there as we possibly can in terms of making sure that we're describing our decision-making processes, our documentation for projects, how we got to certain um, got to certain design decisions, um, how we hold meetings, what does our structure look like for those for those engagements and everything in between? And so continually learning in the open, admitting when we don't have those answers, having public comment periods for our research outputs, inviting other experts to really challenge that, holding calls and holding space where we can. It's really cool that you make your funding and documentation public. And it's scary too, you know, so many people would be nervous about that type of transparency. <laughs> I saw in your IOI orientation packet that this year, as part of your strategic planning work, you'll be looking at and evaluating different funding models to test their feasibility for IOI. What have you learned from this work so far and how are you sharing your learnings? Um, it. You know, we really wanted to think beyond. We often, as I mentioned in the beginning, in terms of how this, how the ecosystem is supported, um, you know, we often think about philanthropic or government grants. We often think about membership funding or institutional funding, 
right? Um, we think of, in if you think of it in a longer term scenario, you think of endowments to support this work, more institutional type um, forms of support. In some cases also say sponsorship, right? Either through different tiers or through events people run and tickets and sponsorship. And so the um, different funding models that we're investigating, you know, in part, are really to think about what where can we learn from some of the ways in which capital has been allocated in different capacities? Um, what do we not want to take forward? What do we want to maybe take forward and iterate? And so what I found really inspiring was looking at models that, first off, fund over a longer term timeline beyond the two to five years. Um, and then also thinking about the broader aim of when we allocate these sorts of funds to these projects, what sort of conditions can we put on that funding, not in a way that seems punitive, but in a way that helps advance the broader health of the ecosystem by saying like, for example, if you were to be approached for acquisition, there might be say a clause to say, you need to go into a six month consultation period where there can be a community counter offer and that needs to be entertained, right? You know, for example, we think of some of these projects that have been bought by the likes of Elsevier or bought by the likes of, you know, some of these other for-profit entities and closed off and saying like, oh, you know, I really wish I could have countered that $150 million off. But it's like, you know, who, we don't have the mechanisms currently in place. Like it usually catches you on your back heel. And so, you know, where can you start to, speculate and also specify in the, in your terms that a different model, if you're going to be accepting public investment or investment to help advance an open aim, this is what that means. This is what it means over this timeline, right? And so those are some of the things in that we're examining. But, you know, one thing that we also are weighing are, you know, it's one thing to increase the investment in projects that exist in the space. It's another thing to actually work towards making open infrastructure the default in research when it comes to the adoption what needs to be done to actually move people from extractive services to ones that are more non-extractive and more aligned with those means what financial incentives what sort of experimentation can help move that forward in addition to just building out you know more usable supported projects in terms of implementation teams? Like, where do we need to be more creative and think outside the box? Just out of curiosity, what are your thoughts on corporate investment in open science? I feel like there might be some conflict of interest issues here, but maybe there are ways to align corporate for-profit investment and open science. I am a strong believer that yes, there are areas where it becomes complicated in terms of where we've seen corporate investment in the space lead to really negative impacts to the ecosystem. I also think that those who are extracting value from knowledge production and from open research and profiting greatly off of it should be giving back and contributing to the underlying infrastructure that allows for those individuals to participate in that process. And so, you know, when we talk about increasing the investment in open infrastructure, open science, whatever, however you want to frame it, um, that has an upper cap if you're talking about the traditional philanthropic and institutional investment. I think that if we really want to shift that dynamic, then not only do we need to be looking at those additional resources, but there should be an explicit call for 
those who are extracting significant. I mean, and we are talking about, if you even look at open access publishing efforts within for-profit entities, you know, for example, I think it's, was it for, for Nature, one of the article processing charges is between nine and 11,000 US dollars for one article, nine to 11,000, like for many organizations, that's their travel budget. Just quickly for our listeners, Caitlin is correct about the fees here. In 2020, Nature announced that authors could publish their articles open access under a Creative Commons license, but they have to pay an article processing charge of 9,500 euros, about $10,000 depending on the exchange rate. According to Nature, this fee covers the costs involved in every stage of the publication process, from administrating peer review to copy editing and hosting the final article in dedicated servers. While this is an exciting step forward for Nature, as Caitlin points out, most researchers will not have the budget to pay this type of fee. So researchers will need to request these fees in their grants, or we may have to find some other options. Now, back to the interview. I say this, yes, to really put my foot down and to be provocative, but also there are examples where this is already done in terms of reinvesting in that community. Um, you know, the group Anaconda who work on the Jupiter stack and IPython um, in Texas, they announced about, I want to say maybe a year and a half to two years ago, um, something called the Anaconda Dividend Program, where 10% of their revenues generated off of Anaconda sales were to be allocated through NumFocus, a fiscal sponsor for computational research programs, um, to be allocated and invested back in the community. I'd love to see what that looks like with more sophisticated models around how much certain organizations should be contributing back and additional pressure and open conversation. I don't think in some cases that it is an impossible ask. I think that there's a, a willingness, but also needing to be really clear about what the terms of that are, what that buys you and what that doesn't, right? And, you know, prior to IOI, I built a, an endowment for Wikimedia, right? And I can say that there are means of structuring, you know, contributions from individuals that you may not necessarily align with or that you want to make sure that there are safeguards set up for that can be directed in a way that does not, for example, buy them a seat on the governance or buy them a seat on the at the table that helps allocate those funds. And I think we need to try. Thanks for giving that example about Anaconda and the way they are giving back to the open source community. Another guest we talked to is also interested in this type of corporate giving model to support the open source community. I think it might be an option worth exploring in more detail. So what's next for IOI? What are you working on that most excites you? Well, we announced on November 1st that in early 2024, we are launching a collective fund. Um, to help, again, catalyze investment in the broader space. We'll be building towards that. What we just described in terms of what does it look like to have for-profits um, contribute and what is necessary in terms of governance, in terms of terms, in terms of engagement in that process, in terms of the research about how much, what does a commensurate amount look like for some of these organizations and how can we start to build a plan for that. That is also in our roadmap for the next year. I'm excited to see what is in store for the next couple of months, years for IOI. What advice do you have for listeners wanting to get involved or help accelerate us towards better open science funding infrastructure? Um, I would say don't be afraid to ask like what support you need to help make your research outputs process 
um, convenings, more accessible, more inclusive, more um, supported. You know, for example, the documentation costs, the equitable participation so that labor is compensated. Ask, ask the funders, put it in the budget, um, the funding for, you know, allocations for research data support so that, you know, information can be not only put forward in a ready fashion, but also maintained. Um, and I think, you know, support even for building out project governance. Don't be afraid to ask. I think that the health of the ecosystem is something that we need to start to understand that resources need to be allocated and tasks that otherwise might be seen as discretionary or ancillary or boring are in many cases the linchpins as to whether or not a project will succeed. Based on today's conversation, I think I'll be adding some budget lines to support making my science open in my next grant application. For example, allocating time and funding to create a data management plan would be useful, which is something we learned about in episode two. I could also look into publishing my research in open access journals. If I can afford it, it will be a good way to ensure my work isn't trapped behind a paywall where only some people can access it. These are just a few small steps I can take to help make science more open. But there's one big change that must happen if we want open science practices to become the norm across the board. What's this you ask? Culture change. In our final episode, we'll talk to two researchers who are leading the way in shifting scientific teams from closed to open practices. In the meantime, learn more about Invest in Open Infrastructure. You can go to investinopen.org and find out more about our work and, and ways to engage there. Don't forget to follow and rate us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And connect with our sponsors at IEEE underscore GRSS on Twitter and Instagram and IEEE Geoscience and Remote Sensing on Facebook and LinkedIn. This episode was produced by Nicole Bedford from Nicole Bedford Films with help from me, Stephanie Tomampos. Graphics and design by Mylene Briggs of Kila Media. And a special thanks to Yvonne Ivy Parker and Keely Roth for their support. I'm Stephanie Tomampos and you've been listening to Down to Earth.